Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 23. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Valley Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom for all of his household. And it was told, King David, the Lord was blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all of the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished the offerings, the burnt offerings, and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all of the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes." But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Many of you are familiar with Mark Dever. He's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. He was speaking at a doctoral seminar one time. He says, I made a statement about God. Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think about God rather differently. 
For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but never overpowering, ever so resourceful, but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how I like to think of God. My reply was perhaps somewhat sharper than it should have been. Thank you, Bill, I said, for telling us so much about yourself. But we are concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires. The seminar was silent for a moment as they took in this potential breach of politeness on my part, but they were also taking in the point. I made some appreciative noises toward Bill, and we got on with our discussion about the nature and character of God as revealed in the Bible. As revealed in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is a narrative rich with instruction on the nature and character of God and how we ought to therefore approach Him in worship. There is on full display one of the greatest theological tensions we find in the Bible. We see it encapsulated there in David's trembling question in verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? So this is not a question you ponder in your easy chair with a nice drink in your hands and your legs propped up while you you craft your own narrative of what you think God is like. Uzzah is dead. And God killed him. There's no getting around that. This passage will take you by the collar. It'll throw you up against the wall. But it's good. We need this. One New Testament scholar said that he thinks that for the average evangelical, their life would pretty much be unaffected if the whole Bible disappeared except for the book of John and the letter to the Romans. Everything else could vanish and we could pretty much just go on as normal. I hope that's not your perspective. We need the whole counsel of God. Remember Jesus and the apostles, they preached the gospel from the Old Testament. Paul says in Romans 15, for whatever was written down in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So this is God's word. And on one level, our very lives depend on how this story resolves and how we choose to respond to it. So do you know this God? Do you worship this God? Do you seek His presence? That's what the ark represented. The very presence of God in the midst of His people. So that's how we're going to walk through this passage. Number one, the desire for the presence of God. Secondly, the problem with the presence of God. And lastly, the joy of the presence of God. So the desire for, the problem with, and the joy of. So first, the desire. David David wants the ark in Jerusalem. All of those years being hunted by Saul, they're done. Saul is dead. And sadly, his son Jonathan, who was the loyal friend of David, he's dead as well. And the long war that ensued between the house of Saul and the house of David, that's finished. David is now the uncontested, publicly recognized king of Israel. So David, he moves from Hebron to Jerusalem. He's captured it from the Jebusites. He's finally defeated the longtime enemy of Israel, the Philistines. Chapter 5, verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So David now has a, a capital centrally located 
uh, to, to politically unite all of Israel, and he now moves to bring in the Ark of God to make Jerusalem the central place of worship as well. If you're new to the Bible, you might have heard of Noah and the Ark. That, that's not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the Ark of the Testimony. It was a rectangular box, a sacred chest made of wood, overlaid in gold inside and out. It was built under Moses' direction about 500 years prior to this story we're reading about today. It was kept in the most holy place in the tabernacle, behind a veil, always hidden from view. And wood boxes like this, overlaid in gold, were actually common in the ancient Near East, even before Moses' day. But what's unique about the ark is that it contained the covenant stipulations between God and His people. That makes it unique. Uh, Israel's ark is unique among the other people groups of the day. Because it contained the Ten Commandments, those two tablets of stone, that's why we call it the ark of the covenant. On top of the ark, there was a lid. The Bible refers to it as the mercy seat, which meant atonement cover. There were two winged creatures called cherubim that were fashioned on either side of the mercy seat. They were facing each other, but their faces were bent down towards the mercy seat. And their wings overshadowed the mercy seat. So it's this picture of reverent awe. And it's here that Moses hears from God. Numbers chapter 7, verse 89 And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim and it spoke to him. Moses heard the very words of God and it was centered right there above the mercy seat on this ark. It's also here on the mercy seat where the high priest would sprinkle blood on the day of atonement for himself And the people, the ark is also described as God's throne. You see it there in verse 2. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So we know God's throne is in heaven, but in some sense He chose to dwell there at the ark in the midst of God's people. As I said before, the ark represented the very presence of God. So when the priests in Joshua's day carried the ark into the Jordan River, The waters stood up in a heap and and the people walked across on dry ground. And when they marched around Jericho with the ark, we know what happened. The walls came tumbling down. And David, as the king of Israel, he wants to enthrone the Lord once again as preeminent in the life of God's people. Yahweh, that's, that's the personal name for the God of Israel. He is the king of this people and of the entire earth. And David is making that point loud and clear. Now Saul, the king just prior to David, he, he had neglected the ark for decades. Saul didn't love God. He didn't seek the presence of God. But David longs to be near God. If you, if you go and read 1 Chronicles chapters 15 and 16, it retells this same story. And you see David, he's bringing in the ark and he's singing a song of thanks. He says, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Do you seek the Lord? Do you long for His presence? When your mind is suddenly flooded with some anxiety, do you immediately go to God in prayer? Or even when things are going well, is it a spiritual reflex for you to to seek God? David longed for the presence of the Lord. 
So he gathers all the house of Israel for this grand ceremonial procession. The ark had been stored in the house of Abinadad for 20 years. They put it on a cart. It's a new cart, we read. And Abinadad's two sons, Uzzah and Ahio, are driving the cart. It's being pulled by oxen. You don't ride on oxen. You, you, you drive oxen by you put one guy in front and one on the side. And so we see uh, Ahio is out front and Uzzah is beside. And this crowd is singing and has all kinds of instruments. You, you see the list there in verse 5. Jeremy's not here today. I'd like to ask him about castanets. You know, maybe we should get some castanets up here. I have no idea what that is. but All kinds of instruments. They are celebrating before the Lord. Their enemies are subdued. They have a new king and he's leading them to enthrone the Lord in Jerusalem. Just imagine it. The people, they, they must have been absolutely euphoric. But there's a problem with the presence of God. The problem is not with God, but with man. Again, our theological tension. How can a holy God dwell with sinful people? He cannot. He will not. It's like, it's like mixing an acid in a base. One is going to consume the other. And the author of 2 Samuel notes exactly where it happens. Verse 6, at the threshing floor of Nacon, which would soon be renamed because of the significance of this event. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now that last phrase is just chilling. And he died there beside the ark of God. So a little side note, when when you're reading the Bible and you come across a passage of Scripture that you don't understand, you are confused by, maybe you're you're offended by it, you need to stop and pray. And you, you need to say, Lord, I don't understand what I just read. I am confused. I'm even a little offended, but I submit myself to your word. The problem is is not in your character. It's certainly not in your word. The problem is with me and my own understanding. Something is lacking in my understanding. Would you please give me understanding? And even if the fog that is laying over this passage doesn't immediately disappear, I'm going to trust you. That's what you do when you come to problematic passages. You're not checking your brain at the door. You're not doing that, but you're humbly submitting yourself to the authority of God's Word. You're approaching it with an attitude of submission, not suspicion, right? If you want an answer for why Uzzah was struck down, it's right there in the text. Verse 7, God struck him down because of his error. And on, on one level, that's all we need to know. There is a very real category called sin. And there is a just and perfect God who gives us commands that we are accountable to. And that's been offensive from the very beginning, but oh, is it offensive today? Some of you might read this and think, yeah, this this is why I hate the Bible. Stuff like this. You know, this poor man was only acting instinctually. What was he supposed to do? Just let the ark fall to the ground? Wrong question. Wrong question. The ark should have never been transported on a cart in the first place. God had given very specific instructions about the ark. It was to be carried on the shoulders of Levites and a specific group of Levites at that. 
They were to use long poles that were placed into the four rings of the four feet of the ark, and those poles were to never be removed. This was all spelled out very clearly and even repeatedly in the law. The ark was not to be touched. Numbers 4.15, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. The ark was not even to be looked upon while in transport. It was to always be veiled. So you'll ask, why all these particulars? It sounds like a cranky, volatile God that's ready to zap you if you step out of line. Well, if you find yourself in a conversation with somebody who is offended by a God that judges, ask them if they are equally offended by God's mercy and forgiveness. They'll say, no, of course not. Well, why is that? You know, there are other cultures in the world less secular than we are, more traditional, they, they are not offended whatsoever at a God who judges. But a God who forgives debts, that's unthinkable. That, that's a sign of weakness, right? So we in the West are offended by a judging God. They're offended by a forgiving God. And Tim Keller asks this brilliant question, why should cultural sensibilities be the final court in which to judge whether Christianity is valid? You know, how how dare God not check with us first, right? Now, God is God. He doesn't need anyone's permission or approval to do anything He wants. And secondly, on a deeper level, if you're offended by God's demands, then you don't understand the seriousness of sin nor the infinite holiness of God. Far from being overly scrupulous, the laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers are a demonstration of His mercy. In all those specific commandments, God is telling us over and over, your sin is serious. It has separated you from me. You can't just waltz into my presence. I'm no cranky deity that needs to be pacified like like the other nations treat their gods. I will not be trifled with. I am holy. God says. You can't come to me on your own terms. That's the message we're supposed to glean. The ark of God is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So this is not just some religious artifact. The ark represented the very presence of God. So when you say, why was Uzzah struck down? It doesn't seem fair. I thought God was slow to anger. The ark had been in some guy's house up on a hill for 20 years. And before that, it had been ignored and neglected for 400 years under the judges. So the question is not why was Uzzah struck down? Why were 30,000 spared? That's what we should be asking. David and the entire nation are guilty here. And they put the ark of the covenant on a cart pulled by oxen? That's what the Philistines did. They're, they're following the pagan example. It's a fascinating backstory on the ark. If uh, you want to go home this afternoon and read 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Uh, briefly, couldn't help, I just got to share this. If you go back several years, even before Saul becomes king, uh, Israel tries to use the ark as a kind of uh, good luck charm as they go into battle with the Philistines. And you remember, that doesn't work out so well. They are defeated, and the ark is actually captured by the Philistines. And from the Philistines' perspective, defeating a nation means uh, they've defeated that nation's God. But God, God turns the tables on them, right? They've only brought fire right into their homes. Uh, they, they start move, they, moving the ark from, from place to place. 
uh, God wreaks havoc all across Philistine territory wherever they move it. Uh, they start breaking out in tumors. The statues of their own gods are falling face down in the middle of the night, mysteriously smashing their, their faces. And the Philistines finally say, we've we got to get rid of this. We are dying here. Let's send it away. So, they put it on a new cart. They put it on a new cart being pulled by two milk cows who've never been yoked. They don't even give it a driver. Like, I'm not going with that. Just, just send it on its way. I'd love to ask Scott Forney how that would work out. Take two milk cows, put it on a cart, hasn't been yoked. It probably would be a total disaster. 1 Samuel 6 tells us though, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. These cows, they've never been yoked. They have no driver and yet they work together for miles until they reach Israelite territory. The ark had not been captured. It had departed from Israel because of Israel's disobedience and now it's coming back in God's timing. God controls where the ark goes, not people. God doesn't need to be rescued. He comes and goes as He pleases. God will not be manipulated. You can't trifle with Him. So, you know, whatever artistic license Steven Spielberg might have used in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he got this right. You don't mess with the ark. The ark comes to Beth Shemesh and God puts to death some of the men there because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, we read. And the town cries out, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That sounds just like David's question in verse 9. So back to our passage. Uzzah is lying there dead. You just try to imagine the scene. There's this joyful, festive procession and then boom! Sorry, I woke you up there. People are screaming in horror. They're backing away from the ark. And we see David is both angry and afraid because of what happened. Who's he angry at? Is he angry at God? Is he angry at himself? Is he angry at Uzzah? The text doesn't really spell that out for us, but he may have thought, you know, this is exactly what I was trying to avoid. I put it on a new cart. One commentator said, even the best of intentions become presumption when the Word of God is neglected. God didn't need Uzzah to come to his aid when those oxen stumbled. And secondly, Uzzah somehow thought the dirt would defile the ark of God more than his hand. Uzzah didn't know that he was unclean. So the party's over. David's not willing to bring the ark into the city. He's afraid of the Lord. Verse 9, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? David deeply desires the presence of God, but he finds he just can't because of his sin. Nick was telling me about a children's book that just walks through the Bible and it has these lines that repeat, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. This, this is the problem that each of us faces. Because of our sin, we cannot enter the holy presence of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins without hope and without God in the world. So that's, that's you and I lying there. We are Uzzah. We are disobedient Israel. And in our own day, the coming wrath of God may be on a time delay. His mercy is holding out, but don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. 
John the Baptist says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is a coming judgment. And, and so what happened to Uzzah is only a coming foretaste. So David, he is in a dark place. He can't come into the presence of God, but he's, he's asking the right question. He's actually in a good spot here because sometimes God uses a crisis to wake us up to the truth, doesn't he? We come to see that we are worse off than we realize. You know, whatever re- resources we thought we had to, the, to bring to the table, whatever our good intentions, all the new carts in the world are nothing before this holy God. We come to see that we are utterly lost. So the ark, it has a three-month stay in the house of Obed-Edom. The Gittite and Obed and his household are blessed. It's just curious, isn't it? It's curious. Obed is likely a Gentile. His name means servant of Edom, which would be a strange name for an Israelite. Uh, he's a Gittite, which means he's from Gath. Gath belongs to the Philistines. Gath is where Goliath was from. It looks like Obed is a Philistine living in the vicinity of Jerusalem. You see it says David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. But we see in 1 Chronicles 15 that Obed is listed with the Levites and he serves as a gatekeeper to the tent of meeting. I can't solve the riddle of who Obed is. But we're told God blesses him and his household while the ark is in his keeping. So why is Obed blessed while others are cursed? This, this may help. So First and Second Samuel are one work originally, right? So the, and they're bookended by two prayers. At the beginning you have the prayer of Hannah and at the end you have uh, the prayer of David. And they follow similar themes. And so it's an interpretive key for, for the whole work. And here's what you learn. The humble who trust in the Lord will be fed. But the arrogant who trust in themselves will go hungry. God raises the lowly, but He casts down the proud. God rejects Eli, but He raises up Samuel. God rejects Saul, but He raises up David. We're not told, but I think something similar is going on here with with Obed. In any case, Obed is blessed, and, and this gives David hope. He can have fellowship with God. God does mean to bless him. It's like Scrooge waking up on Christmas morning. In hope beyond hope, David finds God to be gracious. So he moves the ark in with rejoicing. We see that in verse 12. With rejoicing. So our final point, the joy of the presence of God. So watch how they bring in the ark this time. Verse 13, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, oh, they're bearing it now. They have ditched the cart. The oxen are gone. They've got it on their shoulders. First Chronicles 15 fills, fills this in with a little more color. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites and said to them, Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek Him according to the rule. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And you see what they do after only six steps. They stop and they sacrifice an ox and a fattened animal. So this is true worship. This is reverent celebration. 
This is coming to God on His terms, humbly acknowledging your need for forgiveness. But it's also accompanied with unrestrained joy. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. This is the kind of joy that makes you forget yourself, right? Your eyes are off yourself. David is spellbound in the presence of God. But Michael, his wife, she's not there. She's not in the procession. There were other women were there. You see there? Other women were there. She's not. She's up in her ivory tower looking down on the scene, mocking David in her heart. She's not rejoicing. She's despising the Lord's anointed. She is David's wife, but the narrator doesn't mention that. We're told three times, no less, that she's the daughter of Saul. That's meant to draw our attention to the fact that Michael still supports her father's ways. Saul was proud, so is his daughter. The Ark of the Covenant is coming into Jerusalem under a king that loves God. God is doing something new here. and She is completely missing the significance of this event. And she stoops so low as to insinuate that David is being vulgar in his worship. That's just ludicrous. The man is dressed like a priest. There's no, there's no chance to reveal anything. I mean, he's, he's covered up, all right? David says, it was before the Lord. I'm not dancing for servant girls. But those poor servant girls are rejoicing with me. They honor me because they honor the God who has made me king. She's missing the point altogether. She doesn't recognize what God has done. Verse 23, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So we see that the promised Messiah would not come through a child of royalty, a proud queen sitting up in her tower. The promised Messiah would come through a common woman named Bathsheba. Friends, don't be like Michael. Rejoice with those who rejoice. When, when the people of God are praising His name, you should be in their number. And if you're more subdued in your outward expressions of worship like, my, like I am, that, that, that's just fine. That, that is just fine. But don't despise your brother who feels compelled to raise his hands. It just might be that they are overwhelmed with the grace of God for them in a way that you've grown cold to. Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. So some of us need to evaluate our worship. You know, worship is, is holistic. It's more than what we do here on Sunday mornings. So think about the flow of your life Monday through Saturday. Are you operating with a view of God that is of your own making? Does God offend you? Or are you flippant with God when you talk about Him, when you, when you say His name? Do you give Him the reverence that He deserves? How much do you desire the presence of God? Do you spend time with Him? Do you talk to Him? Take, take stock of these things. Talk to each other about it. Uh, Danielle and I were in the kitchen one night. I was washing dishes. The kids were already in bed. And I said, can you imagine if Jesus was standing in this kitchen right now? She said, no. And we stood there in complete silence and stillness for about 20 seconds, just pondering His presence. Ordinary place in your kitchen, washing dishes. Practice the presence of the Lord. There is nowhere you can go to escape the gaze of Jesus Christ. Stepping back here, we see a humble king who makes a sacrifice and then joyfully leads his people into the presence of God. Just 
stop and think about that for a moment. I've already said he was dressed like a priest, right? Verse 14, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So this is no mere political king. This is a priest king. He wears a linen ephod. He sacrifices burnt and peace offerings, and he blesses the people. So friends, the events of David's life, and even in his own person, are a pattern of glorious things unfolding in redemptive history in the pages of the Bible. David points to a coming king who will rule over God's people and to a coming priest who will atone for their sins that God might dwell with man. So don't let that fact pass you by. The holy, transcendent God wants to dwell with man. The very existence of the ark proves that. So ever since we were driven out of his presence, out of the garden, God has been about the business of restoring his presence with his people. We see it in the covenant with Abraham. We see it with Moses in the burning bush and the Exodus. God as a redeemer brings his people out. We see it in the ark and we see it in the tabernacle and the temple. But if God wants to dwell with us, how can we be assured of his love in view of his dreadful holiness? Well, because in the temple, between you and the ark is an altar. Jesus Christ has spilled his blood and borne the wrath of God for you. He offers himself freely to those who are humble, who acknowledge their sin, who know they are desperately lost unless God comes to meet with them. Has he come to you? He stands ready to meet with you today. Nick said it as he opened the service. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we confess with David in Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Let's pray.